Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, you'll be hearing from author and Bible teacher Alex Seeley, who discusses matters related to the Christian's identity in the Lord. Then it's back to Unite 2018, presented by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail in Nashville. He's a Christian musical artist, an author, and an actor, and he's written a book that is designed to help bring hope in Christ. Comments coming up from Mark Smeeby. Also at that event, I spoke with scientist and author Randy Dawkins, who connects the arenas of science and faith and offers some insight on the compatibility of the two. And on this edition of The Intersection, more conversation from the CBA convention. You'll meet Terry Lynn Schmidt. Her late husband is in the Drag Racing Hall of Fame, and she shared from the heart about her personal journey, including how God has led her through grieving for her husband. Then some commentary from Petrina Mosley of the Family Research Council, who takes those who embrace both the Me Too movement and Planned Parenthood to task, realizing that the nation's largest abortion provider actually enables abuse by failing to report instances of which it's aware. Finally, from First Liberty Institute, Jeremy Dice returns to comment on a recent move at an Air Force base to replace the Bible at the traditional table honoring POWs and MIAs with another so-called Book of Faith. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Alex Seeley and her husband Henry came to America from Australia. They began to host worship meetings in their home. It later became the church The Belonging Company in Nashville. Alex spoke with me recently about a book that emphasizes identity in Christ. It's entitled Tailor Made, Discover the Secret to Who God Created You to Be. Sharing principles related to that book, this is Alex Seeley. I got saved when I was 11 years of age, but there was an identity crisis that was happening inside of me, and I didn't really fully know who I was in Christ. And so I wrote this book to show you, because sometimes we can look at a pastor or a leader or somebody professional and think that they've just easily got it together. But there's been a walk of faith and a journey that they've had to go through. And the enemy is on assignment to steal our identity and and kill our self-worth. And so if we can ignore what he says about us and know who Jesus says about us, we're going to live out the very fullness of who he created us to be. Well, let's talk about this concept of labels. First of all, from a a personal standpoint, what were some of the labels that you were living with and and how did you take some steps to to actually break free? Yeah. Well, you know, you don't realize that you are living under a label until it becomes aware to you through the Holy Spirit or through, you know, you, you, you grow up and you begin to mature. It's not like when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I'm living under the label of rejection, you know. You know, you can't articulate that. But as a child, my mum never meant any harm with this, but I was the fourth born and my mother only ever wanted two children because she thought she could handle two children. Um, come to be me being the fourth, she would say that I was the mistake and I was the surprise that was never meant to happen. And what that did for me um, as a child was just basically label the fact that I, I shouldn't be here, that I was a nuisance and that my mother had to love me because here I was, but she didn't choose to, to want me. And so the enemy wreaked havoc in my mind as a child and basically said, you're not, you're not meant to be here. You have no purpose being here. And we have this self-dialogue that happens sometimes when people will speak words, mm. but they don't really understand that words hold power to, to, to kill or, and destroy. And the enemy will use those words to destroy the inner 
voice inside of us. And so I had to overcome through the word of the Lord and through my relationship with Jesus. And what took place was because I just constantly had self-doubt and found myself feeling unworthy all the time, I needed to believe the truth of God. And so a long story short, and you'll be able to read it in my book, it really came to that moment where I had to believe what God said about me. And he said that he knit me together me together in my mother's womb and that she had a destiny planned out for me that every single one of those days were planned out in his book and I need to just needed to discover that even though my parents may not have planned me God had planned me way before um, the beginning of, of time and so that's really what changed my life to begin to believe hey I actually do have a purpose and a calling um, in this world and it's come from Christ so how do you apply as we think about what God's Word actually says about us. You mentioned that verse from Psalm 139 just a few moments ago and other things that God says about our identity in Christ. How do we apply those Scripture passages so that we can actually walk in a victorious life in contrast to the labels that the enemy would want to use to to really inhibit our spiritual growth? We just have to believe it. I know that sounds almost a bit too simple, but we don't believe that the Word of God actually has our name written in it. Um, we believe it's for somebody else, or, or we believe it's for what the pastor needs to preach. And so we're like, we hear it with our head, but it doesn't actually penetrate our heart. You actually have to believe that everything that he says is about us. It's about me, Alex, you know, Alex you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I just have to believe that this is God's word as if he was sitting across from me at a table or if I was in a therapy session and he was my counselor, he's saying all of these words to me, directly to me. So when I hear the words, you're not worthy or you're not good enough, I need to go to the word and apply my name when he says, no, you are worthy because I made you worthy. My blood makes you worthy. I justified you. You are now righteous and you are now seated with me in heavenly places. What does that mean? I no longer have a right to see myself as anything less than an heir of Christ. So everything he has access to, I have access to. And I honestly believe that most of the church sometimes read the Bible as a theory book rather than an active and alive help book that says, this is for me and I just need to believe it. So apply it, which means now I've got to live it out. I've got to choose to believe what is said about me in this book. Alex Seely here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, alexseely.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's singer, author, and actor Mark Smeeby. He discussed with me the overall topic of hope in Christ and shared about the concept of the devotional book, Live Hope Minute. The conversation took place at Unite 2018, presented by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail. From that conversation, this is Mark Smeeby. Don't you find like people are so busy and they're like, oh, I just don't have time for a, a quiet time or I don't have time to do this or whatever it is. And I'm learning the value of, of pulling myself away from the chaos of the world and just focusing on God and focusing on what's going on in my heart and my thinking. And so that's where this is coming from is to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to ask too much of your time. I'm just going to say I'm going to just get, ask for a minute of your time and you can spend as much time soaking in it as you'd like. But but it is. Yeah, it's just it's simple and quick. 
So what are some of the things that you try to get across within these very short period of yeah. time, periods of time? Yeah. Uh, first of all, Bob, you're great on the radio. Oh, it's really good. You're so good at this. Thank you. How, how, how many how many centuries have you been doing yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is centuries. <laughs> <laughs> it has been centuries. That's fantastic. Well, it's yeah, so great. It's ever since yeah, it's ever since the twentieth. Oh, yeah, as oh a way of back fact. then. Yeah, oh, way back in the twentieth oh, century, nineteen wow. seventies. As at, a matter oh, of fact. Terrific. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, on, in the Lipo minute, I try to I try to make hope really practical. I tend to look at where I see hope in culture, where I see hope in scripture, where I see hope show up in circumstances around me. Uh, but for me, to make hope really practical, I, I focus on three particular areas. And these three areas, like each page in the book relates to one of these areas. And so th- I, they kind of make up the the uh, three-legged stool, if you will, of All what right. I think good hope image. is. You yep. got a good image? Yep. Yep. You sound yep. good, too. Oh, thank you. you. Very good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, so to me, hope has to be grounded in faith. And uh, that, I mean, that's, that's what we talk about all the time is like having faith in God. For some people that you're not to that place where you have faith in Jesus yet, but, but having faith in something that's bigger than yourself is really important to know hope. Because if my hope is all just in me, you know, I'm just enough of a loser that that's not going to get me far. You know, my best, the best of my abilities and the best of my intentions only go so far. So my faith has to be grounded in God. Uh, the second part, the second leg of the stool, is that I, I want to be fueled by love. I believe hope is, is grounded in faith, fueled by love. So mm. the first part of that is understanding how unbelievably loved I am by God and how unbelievably loved you are by God, and then pronouncing that to other people through all my actions, everything that I do, let love be what fuels me. And so grounded in faith, fueled by love. And then the third part, which to me is really practical and really important, hope needs to be guided by vision. Like I mentioned before in this, my struggle with depression, sometimes I lose, I lose vision. I lose sight that I'm a part of God's work. I'm, I'm, I lose sight that I'm helping to build God's kingdom. And, and sometimes it's like as simple as like, you know what, I don't have anything to do today, so I'm just going to do nothing. Like to have a vision for what my day holds, to have a vision for what my month, my week, my year is really important to keep me moving forward. So I believe that hope actually looks forward with great optimism for the good things that God has yet to do. And then I I say, what part can I play in that as well? Mark Smeeby here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website livehopenow.com. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at CBA Unite 2018, it's scientist and author Randy Dawkins who described concepts of the Coded Message Trilogy, including the first and second books, THB and FSHS. From that conversation about matters related to science and faith, this is Randy Dawkins. This was sort of a way that I can... Uh, blend what I've learned from from science as well as from the Bible into a project uh, such as this. Um, The the main characters are actually scientists, and so I wanted to uh, be able to show how science can actually point people to God, uh, that actually when you, uh, I think, uh, science itself is not truth, but science points us to truth, and I I think uh, 
whether it's the microcosm or the macrocosm, I think it all points back to God. Mm, that's awesome. Well, we're going to be talking about that relationship between science and faith. THB was your first book, and we're going to be moving into the second in the trilogy here in the course of our conversation today. But for people that may not have accessed or heard our conversation earlier, share with us about the, the overall set up, if you would, uh, of these characters. Okay. Well, I think w one thing I was thinking when to sort of start this off is, you know, looking at where are we going as a society, and it seems, you know, uh, God is sort of being taken more and more out of the picture. Uh, so I was th thinking, well, what would happen if basically God was taken out of the picture completely? Uh, so the uh, THB opens up into, um, which sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the main character, it sort of feels like his, uh, his life is pretty wonderful. He has a great job and everything's going well. Uh, so much, pretty much like a utopian society. But you uh, find out that um, it's, you find out it really isn't, but the, uh, that, you know, it's a very godless society uh, in, in, in spite of that. And so then you start to see all the things uh, that um, the upper echelon would have to do in order to um, make make that happen. So it becomes uh, sort of a godless society, and then uh, it's then how does God reach people in a godless society? And uh, the overarching theme, I think, is if um, no, no matter what society you're in or where you are, if you're searching for truth, and, and to me, if you're searching for truth, you're really searching for God, whether you realize that's what it is or not. And so God will find you wherever you are. And this might be counterintuitive to some because you have those that look at science as being a, a world in, uh, into itself, and those that look at religion or faith as being a, a totally separate area. It sounds like right. to me that you're actually saying in this godless society, and of course we recognize that there are elements of that even in our overall culture today— a good way for God to speak in a godless society is through through science, through his creation. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think well the the other thing, you know, we all come with, with a with a filter. Mm. And I think that ma the main filter is you either believe God exists or God doesn't exist. And then everything that you experience comes through that filter. Uh, now th these characters were actually uh, they grew up thinking, you know, uh, God wasn't really supposed to be part of their lives, and, and their society community was what was, quote, their God. They were to serve community, be a good citizen, and, mm. and, 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 and all of that. Uh, but then they f found out uh, through some certain events that there's a possibility of God existing, and they had to wrestle with, am I going to believe that or not? So they had to, uh, in one essence, uh, find ways or the evidence sort of overcame that filter uh, for them to actually believe God really did exist. Randy Dawkins here on The Intersection. His website is randydawkins.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. You can also find The Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app, 
Learn more when you visit the website faithradio.org. You can also access the Meeting House homepage in the programming section of that site. At the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also, including recently added content from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at CBA Unite 2018. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Also at CBA Unite, I had the chance to chat with Terry Lynn Schmidt. Her late husband, Harry, is a member of the NHRA Hall of Fame. She shared about her life and faith journey as she relates in the book, When Drag Racing Met Country Music, A Widow's Journey in Rediscovery. From that conversation, this is Terry Lynn Schmidt. My book is a journey of rediscovering yourself through going through the grieving process. I had not intended for it to be that way, but that's that's the way, that's the direction that God took it. Um, but... It, when it comes down to it being your spouse, you know, you, you check in when you're on your way home. You, you, you call and say, honey, I'm on my way, my way home. Do you need anything? Would you like to go to a movie? Let's go out to dinner. Let's, you know, how are you feeling? Would you like to go to, of course, you know, later in the cancer journey with Harry, it was, did you even feel like going to have dinner or mm. just watching a movie together? The silence, literally, um, I found myself not only a widow, but also a single mom and an empty nester all at the same time because both of my daughters were going off to college. So it was just me. So for the whole first year, probably, um, there was something about it just took the wind out of me. I couldn't really speak. Um, I couldn't do what we're doing here today. I couldn't even run my business because it was just like mm-hmm. I had been hit in the gut in the wind. Everything about me, I I. I questioned and thought, okay, if I'm going to get back on my feet with God's help and, and my faith in him and trust in him and belief in him, then what is going to be my next step? Well, I've been writing a column in a downtown newspaper in Dallas, and I'm featured on the church announcement page, so I can speak freely about my faith, <laughs> which I'm so go. thankful for. Awesome. But the uh, combination, uh, three-fourths of the book is... Um, seven years of my writings and in a process of that writing I realized through the editor's reading before going to print she said Terry do you realize that you've been actually healing through the process of writing hmm. so my book started out that way whenever my friends and family wanted me to combine them all and put them in a print so that they could have them they wanted to know where they could find them and then God gave me the title when he gave me that title, it totally changed the direction of the book because I realized that, you know, connecting the dots and going back through your life and looking how God has placed you on a path and and the road that he has you on that leads you to this point of where you are exactly right now in life. His Harry's drag racing years in my country music, he used to call me his little country music star. <laughs> and I just, God said, you know what? It, it's going to be drag racing, met country music. And I said, okay. So then how do I combine it with all of these devotions, you know, going through the grieving process? So I have to speak a little bit about Harry's life and his his journey, racing, and mine and the music. And then, um, so basically that's, that's the storyline of the book. 
Tell me just a bit as we close about that grieving process, what God taught you. There's this element, obviously, as the subtitle suggests, of rediscovery. Tell me about what mm-hmm. God has taught mm-hmm. you in this overall process. Yes. I, I like to connect that with the, the word identity. For a very long time, 21 years, wonderfully, I was introduced as Harry Schmidt's wife. I used to be the country music entertainer, was what I wanted in life. Soon discovered being a wife and a mother was ultimate. Um, But going through the process of rediscovering myself again, I had to realize and look deep down in what I am passionate about and what I feel that God has gifted me with to, to do for him. Terry Lynn Schmidt here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, Terry, T-E-R-R-I, Lynn Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T dot com. Next on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Petrina Mosley, Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy for Family Research Council. In a recent discussion, she talked about an article she had written for the Federalist website entitled, Why It's Impossible to Support Both Me Too and Planned Parenthood Without Being a Big Hypocrite and provided information on recent developments regarding Planned Parenthood. From that conversation, this is Petrina Mosley. Multiple former Planned Parenthood workers have come forward with their testimony, citing that they're trained not to comply with the law, but how to skirt around the law. And on top of that, how to know if you're being videotaped. So Planned Parenthood has learned nothing from the investigative footage that have been released. Instead of correcting themselves and promising to fix the problem, they're training their employees to know how not to get caught on camera. Mm. Well, and something that we've been calling attention to here recently, and there are all sorts of efforts being made in Congress and also through actions of the executive branch of the Trump administration to actually cut off these funding streams because Planned Parenthood receives quite a bit of its revenue. Of course, it is a profitable business. It could survive without this federal funding, yet taxpayers are being called upon to fund this business, not only taking the lives of unborn children, but contributing to the victimization of women. It's being funded by our tax dollars. There's a particular program called Title 10, and the the rules for receiving these grants have been adjusted by the administration. There was a lawsuit, in fact, filed by Planned Parenthood, and there was a judge's decision recently that said that the administration was within its purview to to change these these regulations with respect to to grants to those that would qualify for Title X funds. Planned Parenthood is afraid of losing this particular funding, but when you compare with when you compare what you were just telling us about with respect to one of the qualifications being following the law on reporting these instances of abuse. Well, Planned Parenthood is not complying. So they're, they're suing to try to, to keep these uh, regulations from being changed because there's a good chance they would be excluded from this federal money. Yeah, that's right. And what does Planned Parenthood Planned Parenthood do when they don't like something, they sue. Mm. We see that when it comes to different types of abortion bans that actually help 
the well-being and safety of the mother and also continues to promote the dignity of a child in the womb, anytime they don't like something, they sue. And we see that even with Title X. They don't like it. And there's a number of reasons why Planned Parenthood disqualifies its own self from receiving Title X uh, funds, even even if the new proposals don't get set in. As Title X is written today, they still wouldn't qualify because they perform abortions as a method of family planning. But even after the new Title X regulations were to be imposed um, through the HHS, there, there would be more accountability to uh, places like Planned Parenthood to um, be more transparent in their actions when it comes to reporting rape and child abuse, uh, and also with other scandals that they've been caught up in in selling, illegally selling body parts of aborted fetuses. I mean, there's so many scandals around Planned Parenthood that Title X, the new Title X regulations proposals would really heighten transparency, really heighten accountability, and, and hold them more responsible mm to how they're using taxpayer funds. Um, but back to your point before, they receive nearly $60 million a year in Title X funding. That's just Title X. And all government programs combined from our tax monies, they get over half a billion dollars a year from our tax money. Mm. This is the, the, this is this is scary. This is scary. Yes. A scandal-ridden organization like this is being funded by your hard-earned earned tax dollars. That's a problem. What's even more outrageous is that just last year they reported, right here, they reported a 1.4 billion access in revenue. Oh my goodness. Mm. They would be completely fine without our tax dollars. Patrina Mosley here on The Intersection. Learn more about FRC by going to frc.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Jeremy Dice, Deputy General Counsel of First Liberty Institute. In our overall conversation, he covered two instances of inhibition of religious liberty in the U.S. military, as well as the announcement by the Department of Justice of the establishment of a religious liberty task force. Here he comments on a recent move at an Air Force base to replace the Bible at the traditional table honoring prisoners of war and those missing in action with another so-called book of faith. From that conversation, this is Jeremy Dice. This is an unfortunate circumstance that we see far too often repeated and frankly ties into the announcement this week by the, the Attorney General about his Religious Liberty Task Force, namely that the, the Department of Justice doesn't seem to have received the memo from the AG a couple months ago about religious liberty and the guidance that he offered with that. And so you, you see this one particular group that is going around sending these somewhat uh, serious-sounding letters that suggest that having a, a Bible as a part of a passive display is somehow an establishment of religion. Uh, and, and folks, if, if you're not familiar with what this looks like, this is a, a missing man table, as I think they're sometimes referred to, or the MIA table that is often set up there, to remember those men and women who have fallen and yet that we've not had them return to our home country. Uh, in fact, we're seeing that in the news even even now about how men and women from the Korean War are being repatriated to the United States right now. Uh, but you know, th this is the kind of thing that we're facing, that you have a, a kind of a table setting set up there, and then as a part of that setting is is a Bible traditionally to uh, kind of represent the, the faith that has been so dear, especially to so many uh, prisoners of war uh, while they've been held in captivity. And yet because that Bible just simply sits there in passive display as a part of this remembrance of those who are still missing in action, uh, that apparently is too much for some groups. And they've got to, to uh, 
to, uh, to, to to express their vim and vigor against uh, the United States Air Force against this. That wouldn't be a big deal. People complain about a lot of stuff and, and a lot of meaningless things, uh, quite frankly, and, and they, they, they put a lot of pomp and circumstance behind that. But it's a big deal here because now you've got military commanders who should know better that are scared to death of these uh, letters that mean really very little, and you see them now yanking these uh, these these books, uh, the, the, the Bibles, off of these uh, MIA tables. Uh, that, that's that's silly. It doesn't need to happen. The law does not require that the uh, the state show such hostility to missing man tables that they have to remove the Bible or or things like that. But it also shows how silly it is because what are they doing? They're replacing them with this quote book of faith. Well, I don't even know what that is. Uh, let alone w- what it means for, for this table and the future of it all, and why it would even satisfy people who don't want any book of faith on a table like this. So, um, you know, look, it, to, to all those base commanders that are out there, those men and women in the armed forces that may be listening, you don't need to worry about this. Leave the MIA tables alone. Let us uh, remember our men and women who are still missing in action in a way that, uh, that our comrades, their comrades wish to be remembered. You have this announcement this week by the AG's office. So what, what's the significance of this? It's very significant. Number one, let's not miss the obvious. I, I don't recall any attorney general in our nation's history holding a summit on religious liberty. Right? So that the fact that it happened in and of itself is extremely significant, and, and I think says a ton of things. You know, a, a an individual or an organization that is devoted to one thing will spend time on that one thing, and I think you can see right now the summit in which the AG has put together here. Uh, is something that I think expresses his own personal and, uh, and and his organizational's commitment to religious liberty. Well, but let's back up also. Number one, it's important that we point out that, yes, the AG has held this summit, the first of its kind, I think, in our nation's history. That's huge. Secondly, let, let's back up to see where this came from. This is really growing out of a directive by the Trump administration or President Trump himself. You'll recall that about a year or a little bit more than that, uh, he put out an executive order on religious liberty and informed his attorney general and directed him to develop guidelines in which his departments, his, his agencies, the cabinet members, would be providing uh, instruction on how they support and defend religious liberty within their own orbit of, 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 um, uh, of action. And that's exactly what the attorney general did. He, he, he obeyed the, the commander-in-chief there, the, the directive of the president, developed those guidelines, and I think by October of last year put those out to all the heads of the departments. Uh, and so those were sent around. Those have been in the Federal Register now for uh, coming up on a year. And many agencies have begun to adopt those and implement those. But I think it's been recognized that, uh, it, that not, all, not all agencies have, have gotten the memo. Uh, I alluded earlier in, in this interview that Secretary Mattis doesn't seem to have received the memo. Uh, we've got all kinds of issues going on in the military right now as it concerns to religious liberty, whether it's those missing man tables or cases like uh, Chaplain Scott Squires that we can talk about. Uh, my hope is that by the creation of this task force, whose stated purpose is to institutionalize the enforcement of religious liberty by the, uh, the, the federal government into all aspects of the executive branch, my hope is that this task force, as chaired by uh, Attorney General Sessions, uh, they will make a quick trip to the Department of Defense and remind the, uh, the federal government over there that our men and women of the armed forces sacrifice many things when they go into the military, but their religious liberty is not one of them. Jeremy Dice of First Liberty here on The Intersection. Learn more through FIRST, spell it out, firstliberty.org. 
We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or you can reach The Meeting House homepage through faithradio.org. Go to the programming section. When you reach the homepage, you will find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible as well, including recently added content from Unite 2018 presented by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail in Nashville. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.